As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the way that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to firsthand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how the crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. In light of the novel coronavirus pandemic, Food Without Borders is airing At the Table, a special interview series with journalists, chefs, farmers, activists, and business owners navigating the impact of COVID-19 on the food and beverage industry. This series was originally recorded for MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. If you'd like to watch the online video version of these interviews, please visit www.mofad.org backslash online video series. Thank you so much for listening. Hi, everyone. This is Sari, the Public Programs Manager of MOFAD. I am back with at the Table, which is our online video series about the impact of COVID on the restaurant industry. Um, today, I'm in conversation with Tundewe. He is a Nigerian-born chef and activist coming to us from New Orleans. Hello, Tunde. Hi. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing pretty well. I just watched uh, an awesome conversation on Instagram Live with uh, Yawande Komolafe and Osai. And I saw you were on there too, which was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah with black black food folks. Yeah, yeah. Um, I well, can I just say I don't. Um, we, we don't have to get into this, but I don't call myself an activist. Uh, I just feel uncomfortable. I, I don't feel like I'm qualified okay. to be an activist. Yeah, but thank you for uh, the sentiment behind that. Yeah, of course. Um, I feel like the perception of you uh, differs from your own perception in that way, but. You know, of course, however you want to describe yourself on here is, is, what, is what you are. Um, so anyway, um, the reason I guess we're speaking today is because you have strong opinions about <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things, <laughs> many things <laughs> um, that you've written about and been vocal about and spoken about. Um, one of them is this moment in time and... Uh, you know, kind of the whole point of this this series is about COVID and how it relates 
to the restaurant industry and you did, you know, kind of a now infamous Instagram series of posts um, about why, in your opinion, the restaurant industry should not be bailed out. Um, and so we'll get into that. But first, if you wouldn't mind, because you're in New Orleans, can you just let us know, like, what, how does it feel right now? Like, what is sort of take the temperature on what life in New Orleans is like? Yeah, well, it's hard to say that because most life is, and I think it should be anyway, it's confined to a small space. So I'm not in as much communion with the city as I was before the lockdown. So all that to say that the life that I know about New Orleans is mostly mine. And it's, yeah. you know, mine and just the immediate community around me. So I mostly stay within like a one mile radius of where I live, you know, go to the grocery store and come back and that kind of stuff. So it's pretty quiet, it's like a weekend, it's pretty chill. The energy is um, like laid back. Um, so that's what, life is like for me, but um, obviously New Orleans is at the center of, um, you know, the pandemic in a way. Yeah. And so for a lot of people, I'm sure it's not the same thing. So uh, I can't speak to what people are experiencing um, who are dealing with this virus or people who, are, who are have to go to work every day and be on the front lines and stuff like that. I can just say like, here it just seems, uh, kind of relaxed and slow and i'm sure there's anxiety behind behind uh, or beneath that yeah yeah it is. Um, well thanks for speaking to your experience about your life right now in new orleans um so speaking of new orleans the way you kind of um rooted this uh, conversation that you started on Instagram um, was speaking about life in New Orleans after after Katrina and how the government responded to the restaurant industry at that time. So um, I guess my question is, how did the government response at that time after Katrina in terms of the relief uh, inform the way you feel about this current moment with the way that the restaurant industry is asking for help? Right. So I'll say two things that would probably disqualify me from giving my opinion, but that hasn't stopped me. First thing is that I'm not a, a restaurateur currently. I don't own a restaurant. I haven't owned a restaurant, been, been a restaurant owner since 2015. And I was telling somebody that even then I was poor at it. I failed, you know, I closed the business after like six months. Um, <clears throat> and that's the first thing. Second thing is I am a recent, um, uh, recent resident to New Orleans. I'm, I've only been here since 2015, so about five years. Uh, so I was definitely not here around Katrina at all. Um, and so that's like the preamble. But I think why that is important is because everything that I'm saying about restaurants and about Katrina aren't, spe it, 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 it isn't specialized information it isn't from my experience this is public knowledge you know if you if you just scan um briefly um history or you know you talk to people about katrina or you talk to people who own restaurants the things that i say are true so i'm so all of that to say is that we don't need to look too far beyond us to like understand where things are going after katrina you know some people some people actually said that 
the city should not be bailed out, that it was more trouble than it's worth, right? So that's, that, that was the dire situation um, that folks in New Orleans um, faced. And restaurants were, um, were, were, were battered, you know, they, they, they took a beating, you know, everything that makes restaurants work, you know, water, um, power, food, employees, all of that was like completely disrupted by, by Katrina. Again, you, you don't have to have lived through Katrina to know that, you know, that's, that's what happened. And so that moment, you know, was, I think for some people, um, was a moment that was difficult to see beyond, right? Um, but in retrospect, that moment was a catalyst for what New Orleans is right now, which uh, in terms of numbers, the, the restaurant and hospitality industry has um, rebounded con considerably. I have to tell you, I live with my brother, and so he's going to be doing things. I walk around here, <laughs> so if that happens, it'd be crazy. Anyway, um, so, so Katrina, you know, was this moment that catalyzed what the present is right now. So in terms, so there was this influx of money, um, there was, you know, development, um, so like ramped up to rebuild, but also to expand, um, the city and the infrastructure. And I, and by that, I don't necessarily mean key infrastructure, like the levees, which were, addressed, but maybe not to the extent that folks wanted it to be. I'm talking about the social infrastructure of the city. So, you know, more businesses, more restaurants, more bars, more hotels, more all of that stuff um, happened here. Um, and because with, with that comes more tax revenue. And also more white people moved in, more people in general moved moved into the city um, to take up space um, uh, and also, you know, in, a, in, in essence, to, to, to displace as well. And so if Katrina is, is, a, is a moment that caused this sort of like once in a generation disruption or break in our social and economic lives and the pandemic is not just that, but also uh, a more broadly or broadly en en encompassing reality. So New uh, Katrina was about New Orleans, the pandemic is about the globe. Um, we can see that if we're you know, to follow trends, that what is most likely gonna happen, considering how much investment we have in our current like, economic system, in our current um, social order, we are going, this is going to be a blip that reinforces the systems and the processes that came before it. And this is just my perspective based on, a, based again, not on any sort of like specialized knowledge, but based on, on a superficial reading of New Orleans. And I say superficial because I'm saying that it's obvious what happened. Like you, you don't need to be an expert to see this. You, you just need to be honest about um, what you're seeing. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, I'm also curious because you brought 9-11 into that post that you wrote uh, and you kind of compared the, the way that the United States reacted and recovered after 9-11 versus the way that Katrina um, 
after Katrina in New Orleans reacted and responded. So what was what was sort of your thinking in comparing the two of them? Because it seems like you're sort of comparing this moment with the restaurant industry, even though it's um, a country, you know, that's responding or you're talking about like a nationwide issue. Um, but you're sort of drawing a line more towards New Orleans versus the United States as opposed to the United States now versus the United States after 9-11, if that makes sense. Right. So I th- the, the, the comparison I'm drawing was I used 9-11 to make a statement about the global impact of an incident. But, oh, sorry, the, 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 the not global then. But yes, I, I guess it was global, but I also meant the national impact uh, versus the very geographic or uh, uh, the very like localized impact of Katrina. Uh, Katrina was uh, a local bomb. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it had um, effects on the, the wider economy. You know, there was, I think, some disruption to um, production of oil in the Gulf, that kind of stuff. But it was really just, it was really a local bomb. Um, uh, 9-11 was a national, in fact, a global phenomenon. It was an event that affected the entire country, which is interesting when you think about the actual scale of what happened, um, but its effect, you know, rippled throughout uh, the consciousness of all Americans, you know. Uh, and so, you know, there was a whole new um, security apparatus that was created after 9-11. Right, um, so so that was that was how um, significant it was. So so my my point in connecting the pandemic to 9/11 and um, Katrina is, is to give examples of the scale of events. Um, the first scale was was 9/11, which was national and global, and talk about how that that affected the way we um, the way we interact uh, with, with like our ideas of of, of freedom and. And, and security, um, and then Katrina was talked about a uh, very specific reality that affected uh, the city, but also the restaurant industry, and how both were close to collapse, and how both um, rebounded. And I'm saying in both cases, when we thought that the world was going to change forever, and the world did, everything still remained the same. Yeah, you said something. Um I think in that post that you wrote, you wrote, uh, still we're on the verge of nothing new. And I thought, I mean, everything that you wrote was, you know, so poignant, but that in particular, like sort of stopped me in my tracks. You know, the idea of like being on this precipice of having like an opportunity for change. And then of course, just proceeding. Yeah. Um, First of all, the, 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 the birds, here uh just violent with the chirping so sorry about that I I think it's, it's kind of beautiful i love okay. it <laughs> like people call, me, it. <laughs> people call me and they're like what the fuck is going on i'm like these birds man they're just out here uh, yeah, silent was not the word that came to mind. <laughs> <laughs> try trying to sleep at like 3 a.m in the morning and they just keep going um so yes i i'm working on this other project um with a friend, there's a film, there's a short documentary project that has now, so it's sort of, it wasn't inspired by the essay, but it's now like a, comp- a companion piece to the essay. And we're going to release the first episode, I think tomorrow or something. But um, 
in it, I, I say, I make a comment, and this is true, it's what I believe, that there's a difference between, and this is semantic, but the principle is true. There's a difference between like evolution and revolution, mm. right? And let's just assume that I get to decide the definitions. So evolution is um, sort of like adaptive change over time. You know, you adapt to circumstances. And then revolution is like a radical break with, um, with the past for a new future, uh, 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 a paradigm shift, moving from one reality to another reality. That is a revolution. And I think that oftentimes we, we conflate like evolution with, with, with progress. And progress means that things are getting better. Evolution is the reality that we all have to live. We all have to adapt, you know? So there's nothing extraordinary about, about evolving, right? There's nothing extraordinary about the fact that things are going to change. Uh, what is extraordinary is that if that change is something revolutionary, that, that would be the extraordinary thing. So in the piece, what I'm saying is that we are on the verge of nothing necessarily new. We're on the verge of things continuing to remain the same and that we are on the same evolutionary trajectory and that has always been that will always be that has to be or else we are going to we are going to die like we need to evolve and the conflation of evolution with progress or the conflation of evolution um, with revolution is what gives us the idea that when we have when we face this sort of like cataclysmic event and there's uh, a really concerted effort in response to the event that we can expect something revolutionary. That expectation is is um, is flawed and is based on on this idea that evolution and revolution are, are the same thing. They're not the same thing. And I'm not even and I'm not making a case for revolution or evolution. I'm just saying that they're different. And so we just need to understand that and make decisions based on the fact that these two things are different. Yeah. Um I mean, it does feel like by the end of your post that you are making a case for revolution, I assume, because isn't that why you wrote it? Yeah, I, well, I, I meant to say I'm not making a, in the statement that I just made, I wasn't. Oh, in uh, that yeah. Yes, but yes, but obviously revolution is what I'm going for. <laughs> right, um, but do you do you feel pessimistic that we're not eventually? Oh yeah, I don't think it's gonna happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so actually, I would say that maybe I'm not making a case, but because I don't believe that anything is going to change. I have a friend who is a publisher and she publishes work, uh, she publishes literary work by Africans, for Africans, but you know, anybody can, can read the work. And her mission, um, to paraphrase it, is that she wants to, uh, she's building the archive. And so if we think of archive as like a history or as a repository of, um, of lessons, stories, feelings, um, then telling stories about who we are and having those stories told by the people who actually experience those things means that the archive is more true than not, right? As opposed to other people telling um, as opposed to other people telling your story. And so for me, in writing that, I want to leave some sort of record behind that says that not everybody was down with this bullshit. Yeah. You know, not everybody said bail out the restaurant industry. Not everybody said 
the restaurant industry is more important than the airline industry. Not everybody said that, you know, the way to get out of the reality of disparity and inequality in our system is to give businesses, um, you know, loans, uh, and have them pay back over two months or whatever. Like, not everybody was down for that shit, you know? So there are folks, myself included, and, and other people too, who, who were saying and are saying that, no, let's think about things differently. And so to the extent that extent that, that is revolutionary, sure, then, then that's what it is. But I don't think that, first of all, I don't even have enough power or influence to make, my revolution happen, and I don't think that it's, it's going to happen because there's too much investment in, in the way things are currently. Right, so, I mean, just to be clear, you're kind of, the way you, I sort of um, interpreted what you wrote is you kind of uh, served up New Orleans uh, as like an, a, a micro example and like America post 9-11 is like a macro example and said, you know, there was opportunity both times for revolution to happen, but Instead, what occurred was evolution. Yeah. But there was response and there was people who called for revolution. And then ultimately, we, we still have capitalism. And that's the Yeah. Priority. Yeah. And I, and I think you make my point better than I did. Especially no, with, I don't with, think so. With, uh, no, no. But especially with the 9-11 um, thing, you know, we forget. I mean, because of the overwhelming um, archive or canon in favor of what happened, we forget that there were people who said, Look, this is not a time for war. This is a time to think about America's like geopolitical um, relationship with other countries, with Muslim countries, with um, other folks. Like this is a time to do something different. Yeah. Like there were people who, who 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 said that, and I didn't necessarily address that at all in my essay, and I probably um, should have. So that's the point that I'm making by saying what I said is that yes, that th this is a uh, missed opportunity um and i feel like the opportunity is already gone in this moment right people are talking about reopening um states I and mean, some states are already kind of partially open um you know i i don't think there's probably going to be any any sort of like radical stimulus package i think that moment was probably two relief packages ago and that's gone so and, you know, the, the moment is the moment is lost in my mind, um, which isn't to like condemn our future to the same thing, but just to say that, you know, we need to piggyback on another moment or another effort if we want to get something different. Yeah. Um, <laughs> can you just explain uh, for those who haven't read your writing, like what is your sort of fundamental critique in which the way that restaurants are asking for relief? Um, I think, well, fundamental critique. Well, the, funda the fundamental critique is that they ha we have disparity in the restaurant industry and in the economy at large. And there are different kinds of disparity, but the disparities that we have are material in that there are people who, are, who don't have enough. Um, and there are consequences to not having enough. And so if you don't have enough, of your material needs met, it means that in plain terms, you have poor housing, poor education, poor healthcare or no healthcare, uh, poor jobs, poor leisure, just poor outcomes in general. And the folks who do have 
and have can look like a lot of things. You know, I don't want to simplify and say, well, they're rich and they're poor. The people who have and the people who don't have and have could look like access. It could look like other forms of capital that isn't necessarily financial. But the people who do have, have at the expense of the people who don't. And in my, in like my critique, what was said explicitly and not, and, and implicitly was that there is a lot of language about, around solidarity, right? But what is really happening is uh, an entrenchment of the order that exists, right? Restaurant owners have a certain like wealth position relative to the workers who create the value for these businesses currently. Uh, and I say currently because in some future, maybe robots are going to um, replace us. But what, whatever sort of help or assistance that folks are asking for from the government is... Uh, affects workers and owners in different ways. The money that comes to workers is going to be used for consumption. Like folks have to eat. They have to eat food, they have to eat housing, they have to eat childcare in the sense that they're paying for childcare, paying for housing, paying for all these things. The money that comes to um, owners is an investment in their business, is an investment in their continued uh, expansion uh, in terms of, of their wealth um, position. And if you remember that, in the current system, the continued expansion of wealth is at the expense of folks who don't have. So we're basically asking the, the government um, to subsidize the unequal status that already exists and maybe even expand it. So, so this is my, I guess, my fundamental critique is that we are entrenching the system as it is and we're using language that is uh, that suggests that we want different when we don't want different. And if we do want different, these are the things that we could do. We can ignore um, restaurants or be agnostic about the industries that get built out and focus on the people who make up the industries and who we call um, um, workers or labor or employees. We can ensure that those folks have access to healthcare, quality healthcare, quality housing, quality jobs, quality leisure, um, and you know all these other surrounding um, benefits that make living worthwhile in general. Yeah, right. So I guess your point is that um, you, the restaurants are asking for money to in, in order to enable themselves to return to the status quo. Yeah. Without right. addressing any sort of systemic right. issues whatsoever. So like the workers have money that acts as a band-aid so they can temporarily you know deal with their immediate issues at hand and then the restaurants continue um to profit off the backs of their workers yeah and i wanna i mean this is a nuanced point right because for some people when folks hear that they think that the assumption is that owners are living off or living high off the hog whatever the expression goes mm -hmm. I'm not saying that I'm not saying that owners aren't struggling. Of course they are. I'm not saying that some owners right now can't meet their bills. You know, of mm -hmm. course, of course some can't, you know. So there are different like levels of precarity, you know, whether you're uh, an owner or a worker. What I am saying though is that the investment in owners or workers is um is disparate. Mm -hmm. Um they're different 
kinds of investment in, in, in our economic system, right? It's like one is a loan, one is like an investment in your business and businesses uh, are meant to create profit and accrue interest and all that stuff. So that one, is, one is that and the other is something else is we'll give you a stimulus check, you know, or we'll give you insurance benefits so you can just keep consuming. Yeah. Right. So these are these are two different realities. But if we just like again ignored the labels of owners and workers and just took care of people, because owners are people too, then the owner presumably may may also re rethink their position. Like if they don't have to like be stressed seventy hours out of the week and worry about how they're going to meet payroll and 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 uh, uh, pay their suppliers and and stay in business, but they can uh, work a decent um, number of hours and then also have the same things that we're talking about that workers need, healthcare, um, housing, education, childcare, benefits, leisure. Then maybe they, maybe they rethink the, the entire reason why they are in that business. Maybe they, they don't want to be there and they think that's the only option they have. There's a definition of, ca of capitalism that says Capitalism is a, a lack of choice. You know, you if you if you want to if you want to live uh, in a home that has electricity connected to the grid, for example, um, you can't do it outside of a capitalist system. You know, if you want to if you don't have access to certain things, you you know you you can't do that outside of the capitalist system. And I think both owners and workers, again, which are just people, we're all trapped in this certain reality and it's, it's we are either side of the same coin and I'm not quite sure who it serves yeah. ultimately I know that some people are benefiting more than, than others but ultimately it doesn't um, serve us to the extent that we think it does mm -hmm. yeah which is why you wrote so beautifully that the restaurant industry is the best lens uh, in which to examine American capitalist values yeah um, so in terms of this revolution that you know, you don't feel optimistic about it at this point. Um, you did you did lay out some demands, I guess, on a policy level, on a federal some, level. Some demands to my Instagram followers. <laughs> I demand you guys do this, <laughs> right? Well, I don't, yeah, yes. But I think you were also speaking to our federal government. Um, but it was, I mean, to me, it's so interesting because your, your de the three demands that you put forward are reparations, for African-Americans, indigenous people, uh, eliminate poverty with um, a federal job guarantee and baby bonds. And all of these, when I read them, I was like, that's pretty radical. But then you also laid, you also showed us that there was precedent for all of them. So in fact, they weren't so radical um, mm -hmm. and they could all, you know, fit historically within the precedents and also, you know, fit neatly into this Green New Deal that you described. Um, so, <laughs> so if, if we can kind of pivot to, if there's any sort of, um, window at this point for revolution, maybe not with all of these policy demands being met, because I mean, how realistic is that? But is there any way to shift at this point? I think within the restaurant industry for those owners who are, um, okay. like you care about possibly creating some changes and shifts so that we do have a, a more equitable industry going forward. Does that... What would that look like? How would that have to happen? Yeah, so I would say that those three things or two and a half things that I mentioned aren't my ideas. And uh, so just just to be clear, and I, 
they're just a product of the reading that I have done. Those specific ideas as packaged together come from um, an economist named Sandy, Sandy Darity, who does work um, around racial wealth disparity, and he's uh, an economist at, from Duke University. So, the, so those are his, you know, packaged together as that are his ideas. Now, the individual um, policy recommendations don't necessarily belong to him. This is like the product of a lot of um, research that other folks have done. And then the Green New Deal is, again, that's also like a policy brief, uh, or rather not a brief, but a policy proposal that has been around. Uh, I think most of us identify the Green New Deal with um, AOC, mm-hmm. but has been around long before her <coughs> and uh, that folks have been um, working on. So just, have you ever been, I'm just curious, have you ever been in touch with her? Just No. No, okay. Yeah. So, um, so I, I guess I'm saying all that to say that there is like a rich history of people, uh, not even a history, it's a rich present of people like doing this work, serious people doing this work. Uh, and to your point, things like reparations have happened, you know, are, you know, in, in all sorts of different, yeah, different, in a different like weird ways, you know, are still going on. Like if you look at, uh, uh well let me not say what i i can't like back up with facts right now but yeah reparations has happened you know um and the uh i think the the baby bonds one i'm not sure i'm 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 not sure if that you know they're, they're different that the baby bonds thing is based on programs that currently exist right like some folks can you know pay uh uh divert money towards certain accounts uh, for college tuition, and those have certain tax benefits and stuff like that. So there are mechanisms to make this happen. The federal jobs guarantee is basically what we have right now with our, um, unemployment insurance, right? The, the government has basically created a floor for wages. And so if you, are go- if you make more on uh, unemployment than you would at a job, it makes sense that you wouldn't take a job, you know? Um, But again, there are all these complex emotional um, realities attached to that, because I believe that people actually want to work doing something, something that is valuable. Anyway, so to to respond to your question directly, I think that the opportunity for these like larger um, reforms may, may have passed, but what still remains is the tremendous organizing potential that we, ha- that we are seeing activated by ownership. And I'm talking specifically about the IRC, the Independent Restaurant Coalition. And I'm only talking about them because they are generally the group that seems closer to the ground. The NRA, um, the National Restaurant Association, deals is it's a mix of different kinds of food businesses. But um, from what I understand and from what I, the impression that I get is dominated by larger food businesses uh, like McDonald's, um, Disney, and these like larger companies who have uh, much more clout. Uh, but you know, the NRA and the IRC to me are the same thing, uh, with all due respect, in that they are both advocating for themselves. Um, so, to my point about the, the organizing potential that exists, I think that 
again, if the IRC, as an example, drops its demand for a sectoral-specific bailout and instead begins to advocate for wider worker relief exclusively, then we can begin to see the turnaround and, and, and the change that we need to. So imagine if the IRC wasn't like writing reams, uh, 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 ex, 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 um, expending reams and reams of paper on why the PPP doesn't work and like, you know, what new fine tweaks should, should be made to that. And instead of two months after opening, they should extend it to like six months. After, like, instead of that, like, why don't we just say universal basic income, universal insurance, um, universal childcare, like these are the things that directly affect the workers that you're talking about um, protecting. Like if you look at all of the owners, all they keep talking about is, I feel so bad for my workers. I feel so bad that these workers don't have a job. These workers don't need your job. They need access to healthcare, access to uh, quality, um, wages that's that's what they need right so you are sort of like they are substituting the jobs that they offer for the solution that we need and those are not the same thing at all like your employment is not the solution we need yeah all right Sunday, i'm i'm gonna wrap up with you because i don't want to take any more of your time um, Thank you for getting me um, riled up. I would honestly have only talked to you all day long, but <laughs> no, thank um, you. that would be rude of me to expect that of you. But thank you so much. I am like truly honored to, to be speaking with you today. Thank, thank you very much. Thank Appreciate you for your voice and your writing. Um, I... I absolutely want to be part of your revolution. Thank you. So keep going. But tell us where we can follow you. Um, I think on Instagram, um, from underscore um, Lagos. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, you stay safe. You too. Take care. Okay. All right. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. This program is powered by Simplecast.